Stay hungry, stay foolish. The Innovation Show is proudly brought to you by Zai. Zai is boldly transforming the future of financial services and powering its customers by making innovative financial services accessible to all. You can check them out on hellozai.com. When a company is committed to growing through innovation, standard accounting documents offer insufficient and oftentimes irrelevant data. Innovation accounting is a practical guide for these companies to help them measure and track innovation. Most established organizations have understood the need to innovate and become more digital. However, the management tools available to leaders seeking to understand the investments in innovation are lacking. Financial accounting in particular is difficult to use in the context of digital innovation. A new complementary system for measuring and tracking innovation is needed. Today's book provides tools, frameworks, templates and visualizations that can be easily understood and applied. These can all be used by executives looking for a new way of measuring corporate performance in a world where accounting recognized assets are becoming commodities, by investors seeking better ways of looking at a company's growth potential, and by managers who need to evaluate innovation product teams using more than just financial indicators. Today's book is an essential go-to book for anyone who wants to measure their company's innovation ecosystem. It's a great pleasure to welcome the co-authors of Innovation Accounting, Esther Emily Hans, and previous guest and friend of the Innovation Show, Dan Toma. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Aidan. Good to be here. It's great to have you both. We've been planning this for quite some time. And you can see behind me, I have both copies of your, of your two brilliant books, beautifully illustrated as well. And we'll get into that in a little while. But let's get straight into the book, because I'd love to get through as much as possible. And this show is ideal for CEOs or corporate change agents looking to put some structure on their innovation, in particular, those of us who battle with the finance department trying to show validation and accountability for many of our projects. This book is the book that you need very illustrative, and goes into huge detail. But Dan and Esther, you begin the book by telling us organizations need metrics to understand their current situation and prepare for the future. Focusing on a defensive strategy or a progressive one is enforced by a scoreboard. The results of certain actions can't be tracked in the absence of absence of that scoreboard. In current terms, every company has a scoreboard of a sort. In particular, without a financial accounting scoreboard, companies would not be meeting their obligations legally. And this accounting scoreboard is made up of three main documents, the profit and loss statement, the balance sheet, and the cash flow statement. However, the problem with this type of scoreboard is that it's only painting half the picture. And that half is very much rooted in the brick and mortar economy of yesterday, putting the service driven digital companies of today at a huge disadvantage. In today's marketplace, this dated scoreboard needs an update and investors know this better than anyone. The drive today is for information, finding a way to delve beneath the statistics of the past to bring an understanding of what is to come. After all, to quote that standard investment warning, past performance is no guarantee 
of future results. Investors don't really care about how much profit was made last year. If they are putting their fate in an organization, they want to know what is to come. I thought that was a brilliant excerpt to root us in this big challenge that we have, the change from bricks to clicks, the change from the physical economy to a more digital one brings a huge change in accounting, in innovation, and we don't have that structures in place. Over to you, perhaps, to give some context to today's show. The um, idea behind it is the fact that the world is changing, right? And we all know it. Like the way we, the way we interact with companies, the way we interact with, with value propositions from different companies is changing. Um, if, uh, let's say, 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, we were used to going to the bank and signing papers for, for a loan or for a mortgage, uh, now we actually expect for this to happen from the comfort of our house, right? We upload some documents in an app or in a browser, and then everything gets uh, obviously sorted out by a very smart AI algorithm, and it takes probably half an hour, an hour, two hours, but anyways, not two weeks, right, uh, for my loan to be approved. Um, obviously, it's very difficult to uh, measure organizations that are in the digital space, in particular organizations that are uh, digital native organizations, right? Here we're talking the likes of Twitter, the likes of Facebook, the likes of, of Netflix. Um, and if you, if you turn it one notch further, it's going to be even more difficult to uh, measure new organizations. Uh, we, we researched uh, organizations around the world and uh, we realized that uh, actually a vast majority of the new ones um, you know, obviously organizations that everybody knows of, like Amazon, like Tesla, like FedEx, right? Like new, newer organizations uh, were not profitable for five years. However, they were able to raise capital. They were able to uh, get even IPOs, right? And very successful ones, I would add. Um, this was all done in the absence of a solid balance sheet. Why is that? because obviously investors saw potential in that particular company. Well, so far we don't have a system that's going to help us measure potential, not even a single bit. And uh, this is why we uh, decided to some extent to write innovation accounting because uh, there is a way actually in which you can measure future potential of an idea, of a company, um, of, of a group of, uh, of companies if you want. Um, in the absence of financial evidence data. And uh, again, we didn't write innovation account. Now, I just want to say this now at the beginning so people don't, uh, don't get the wrong impression. Uh, we didn't write innovation accounting to replace financial accounting. Uh, on the contrary, these two topics complement each other. Innovation accounting is great when innovation accounting is terrible and the other way around. So basically, once your organization, your team, your product, your whatever grows and it becomes profitable, uh, less and less information from innovation accounting will be uh, relevant and useful and more information will be needed from financial accounting. However, in the beginning, very few bits of uh, financial accounting information are useful. And then that's why you need innovation accounting. So uh, basically, these systems work together. It's not that one replaces the other. It's not like we decided one day to, you know, throw out 500 years of accounting, actually. 
because <laughs> actually we've been doing this for 500 years, um, and say, replace it with these indicators. No, this won't work. Uh, however, if you want to understand the potential of, your, of an organization, if you understand internally in your organization, if you should finance a certain, uh, a certain product or a certain team, uh, if you want to understand if a group of companies is performing better than others, um, you know, coming from innovation, obviously, look at their growth potential, you need innovation accounting. I want to add to that as well, because you said, Aidan, that it was largely due to um, digitization, for instance, or the digital world. But what we're seeing is um, a lot more uncertainty in the world anyway, not only due, due to um, digital acceleration, but also climate. Um, so, so things are accelerating into more uncertainty. And what you see that that corporates are trying to um, invest more into the future, and they have several means of doing that, which also means that um, the black spot for financial accounting is actually getting bigger for most of these corporates trying to uh, be more future proof. And the bigger the black spot is, uh, uh, the more need you have for a system that will tell you the story of the black spot, because now it's just a big red uh, cost dot instead of, of maybe Shell trying to, to uh, show people that they actually do invest in, in renewable energy projects, but they can't show it, whereas their competitor Exxon is not doing anything, but they have the same kind of balance sheet, right? So I think that big black spot of what we're doing to be future-proof is getting bigger as we turn into a more uncertain world, and we need um, a system to tell that story, to understand what we're doing. And, and where we need to invest. I pulled on that point a great little excerpt here. You say CFOs of companies such as unicorn businesses, they themselves admit that they cannot justify their market capitalizations based on traditional metrics alone. They conjecture that their market values could be viewed as the sum of option values of the projects undertaken or the sum of best case scenario payoffs. One CFO said her valuation should be considered on a per idea basis instead of a per earnings multiple. Whatever the methodology you tell us, the underlying message has to be one which gives potential investors, whether that's within internally within the company or external investors, a positive future vision. By way of contrast, consider the decline in valuation of industrial giant General Electric, one which led to it being dropped from the Dow Jones in 2018. Despite internal restructuring, the company was unable at the time to deliver a strong enough vision to provide certainty of its future direction, and investors reacted accordingly. I thought that really summed up what we're seeing at the moment, what we're experiencing. But I'll use that as a way to jump into what you call the three conundrums of financial accounting. You tell us here, the drop in relevance of financial reports can be attributed in part to three conundrums. Number one, and perhaps one of you guys will take this, the most valuable assets of a company are not recognized as assets in accounting terms. You set us up with an Oscar Wilde quote, the cynic knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. And how some argue that this is a reflection of most financial executives' mental models today. In the world today, the world that we're going through today, we're seeing something very interesting. Uh, we're seeing that financially, traditionally financially recognized assets are becoming a commodity. Um, it's becoming uh, less and less <clears throat> of a competitive advantage 
to own physical assets. In some cases, in some industries, actually, that becomes a burden. It's the reverse of a, of a competitive advantage, right? If, uh, if uh, the cost of entry in certain industries was in the hundreds of thousands of dollars or, or pounds or euros, whatever currency you're using, um, I don't know, five, 10 years ago, now it's probably in the thousands, if not in the hundreds. I remember, for example, when I started up, uh, that, um, and that was probably more than 20 years ago, I'd say, uh, we had to buy our own servers because there was no such thing as, as cloud, you know, cloud servers. And that costed us a lot as a startup to have our own server. And plus, we had to pay an expert to set it up. I mean, we were good at it to some extent, but not perfect. So we had to pay somebody, plus the hardware, plus the hardware needed to be updated every two years and so on and so forth. It's very expensive. <clears throat> and nowadays, I can just do it with a credit card. I go on Amazon web servers, and I do it with a credit card. So my cost of entry in a business that has to do with servers now <clears throat> drop from thousands to hundreds, if not tens. And uh, this can be said for a lot of other businesses as well. Um, so again, this comes to highlight the fact that the nature of, um, of uh, valuable assets has changed. Um, if in the past, they were very much tangible and very much physical in nature, now they have shifted towards other things, non-tangible in particular, things around culture, things around process, things around um, innovative mindset, things around process, right? How fast are you moving stuff for your funnel? How, how fast are you coming up with new ideas and commercializing them, right? Financial accounting doesn't, doesn't account for that. It's impossible for Netflix to put into a financial accounting document the impact that their algorithm has on the addictiveness of uh, of uh, of Netflix, it's it's impossible for Twitter to put in their financial accounting documents uh, the um, algorithm that suggests new friends to follow, or it shoots certain type of information to you, uh, or it puts your tweets higher or lower, and then as a result of that, you get more followers and get more interactions, you get more conversations going on. It's it's pretty impossible to do that. Um, it's impossible for Zoom right now. We're, we're using Zoom. It's impossible for Zoom to report on the number of daily active users in a financial accounting document, right? And uh, again, the world is changing and we're seeing more companies that are not asset heavy uh, becoming highly appreciated by investors um, in obviously relative to asset heavy organizations. Uh, just, uh, I think at the beginning of the pandemic or probably year one, I saw a very interesting uh, infograph. Uh, the value of Zoom was equal to the value of all uh, American-based airline companies combined. So those people have assets such as planes um, or, or all sorts of facilities where they can, uh, they can refurbish the planes or you know, do maintenance on them. All those things together were valued less than Zoom that has none of those uh, financial assets. I don't think they even own a, own a building, right? What do they own? They maybe own some you know, servers, although I might doubt that, right? They might be Amazon. What do they own? They own intellectual property. They, they own the ability 
to you know create a product that's able to connect people and be used in so many environments have all these beautiful uh, features that we're currently using now during this call so this is this is why that uh, that conundrum is there in the book because the world is changing the nature of assets is changing we're in the knowledge economy and oftentimes corporate innovators try to articulate that they have some skills built up within the organization and a traditional financial person is going to actually just ignore that because they don't see that as any value. And it brings me back to a great piece you say talk about in the book where you talk about valuing people as true assets, you say, it's not realistic to hope now that banks, for example, will start treating their employees like football players. But there is one thing that the CFOs can start doing, you say, they can design and deploy an accounting system complementing the financial accounting one geared towards highlighting strategic resources, like you just said there, these strategic resources will then be nurtured and developed into or seen as equal as financial assets are. I thought that was a key point. And furthermore, you add here, there's no place in financial accounting for network effects. And when you try to speak to somebody in a traditional business forum about network effects, they start thinking you're pontificating or maybe showing off, for example. But understanding network effects in the digital economy is so important. And you say here, this actually implies negative depreciation expense in accounting terms. So the fundamental idea behind success of digital companies, the increasing returns to scale goes against a basic tenant of financial accounting's assets depreciate with use. I thought that was such a key perspective that perhaps we'd expand upon. I just want to add here one sentence. Um, if I buy a truck tomorrow, right, um, and I start using it to deliver stuff around the world or in my city, the value of the truck drops as I am using it. Like the moment I, I, I take ownership of it from, from the dealership, the, the, the value of the truck is just going down and down and down. Uh, however, if we free on this call decide to start a social network or decide to start a media website or decide to start a, a ERP business, the more people are using it, the more valuable our uh, product becomes and the more uh, relevant our company becomes. And these two are exactly the opposite. Obviously, we're not arguing to replace the financial accounting thinking, uh, but we just can't use that as a one-size-fits-all for every business because it just doesn't work for every business. Obviously, if we were to start a logistics company, it makes sense to say, yes, our truck is you know, decreasing its value as we're using it. But if we start a, uh, an online business, no matter what that online business is, we can't use the same logic. I don't know if you know, Dan and Esther, there's a Scott Galloway, who's been a former guest on the show, brilliant writer, he writes a, a lot around Amazon, and the big four, he calls them, for example, Apple, etc. And he has a term for this, he calls them the Benjamin Button economy. So you know, this the movie Benjamin Button, where he gets younger as he ages. And actually, that's what he's saying, these products, actually become more valuable as they age versus exactly what you said, the products and the assets within an organization depreciate with value. But let's bring it on to conundrum number two. Because you say here, accounting based financial reports show only 
the final outcome of asset deployment, revenue and earnings. Financial accounting is totally silent on the phases an asset passes through as it converted back into money. Financial accounting is not telling any story about the value creation process nor the innovation process used by a company to achieve specific revenue targets. A great example here that you share in the book is Dell, whose pursuit of return on net assets, ONA led them to outsource most of their capabilities to ASUS. I'd love to share this case study. This one for me is one that I use all the time myself. It's an ex example of outsourcing more and more of your thinking or your capability building, and then all of a sudden coming to a sudden realization that what, what have you got left? Only a brand. We looked at companies. We looked at the companies we worked for. We looked at, uh, at our own companies. And um, we realized essentially that um, in financial accounting, you only track stuff that has happened and you only track a result of a process. Um, that process might be, you know, commercializing a certain software tool or commercializing a certain product or a certain part. But regardless of the business your company is in, what financial accounting is tracking is the result of a process. If you want to improve that particular outcome, if you want to improve that particular impact, you need to improve the process. Financial accounting is very silent on the process. It's very silent on um, how you can improve that process. If you were, and this is, this is a metaphor I've been using when I was, when I was employed with a, uh, with a major telecommunication company, we were only looking at uh, improving our revenue. And I said, well, you know, the easiest thing to do since we own all these buildings around the world, let's just sell them. Let's just sell them next quarter. And uh, trust me, our earnings will go through the roof. We actually own some, some real nice uh, real estate in, on Wall Street. <laughs> and that, that was just one of the buildings that we were owning. And it's like, but let's sell them. Let's sell them next quarter. And obviously, we're going to be super profitable. Revenue is going to be through the roof. However, the quarter after the next one, we will have to still rely on our ability to sell subscriptions, internet, internet data, all the things that we were selling as a, as a telecommunication company, TV subscriptions, so on and so forth. So if we want to improve revenue, we actually need to improve our processes. And we need to improve our processes of selling, marketing, but also our processes of, of launching new ideas and desirable new ideas. Um, a lot of a lot of you know leaders that we met along the way as we were uh, consulting and working with uh, working with companies in various domains are unfortunately disconnected from the value creation system um, i'm not i'm not saying this this goes across the board for every leader because um, well, again a vast majority is also connected but we've seen unfortunately a great number of them being disconnected from the value creation system like they they were just so focused on revenue that they forgot how revenue is created. And uh, I, think, I think, you know, financial accounting is terrible at, at changing that behavior. Uh, you need to have a system that puts a process first and, uh, or at least at the same level with, uh, with the outcomes of the process. This is why in the book, we actually make a very uh, big distinction between what is a KPI and what is a KRI, key performance indicator versus key result indicator. Um, some, of, some of the things that we're tracking are performance indicators. Some of them are result indicators. The difference is that the performance indicator can be changed through action, 
result indicators can only be changed if you change the process. So obviously, if you change the KPIs. Um, I think again, this, this goes back to the fact that, uh, you know, in, in a digital economy, uh, but also in, in, in brick and mortar, the process is very important. The process of uh, how you do business, the process of how you serve your clients, but also the process of how you create growth beyond what's today existing in your company, beyond today's core, is also very relevant. A great example, Dan, I often think of, and I tell this to people who are maybe running a business and don't realize what they have. They often have capabilities they don't even realize because they don't account for them. Uh, an example would be two of my best friends run a burger a place here in Ireland called Bujo, and they have a really interesting and sophisticated HR process, and actually how they produce things, etc. And I was like, "Oh, that's valuable. That could actually be more valuable than the profits you make from the business because you could sell that expertise to other places all over the world." And the example I give them is AWS because this is what happened as in AWS. They in a meeting they had in Jeff Bezos's house, what? capabilities do we have asked Jeff, Be Jeff Bezos Andy Jazzy now CEO of Amazon's like well we can do this thing with servers because we're trying to onboard customers we could start selling that and AWS is the powerhouse behind the organization now I thought that is exactly what you're talking about here this idea of you have capabilities but until you start measuring them oftentimes you won't even be aware of those capabilities same goes for Zappos for example Zappos is winning and has been winning because of their customer service, customer support. Um, they are known for that. They are known for the culture. It's even called like the, the, the Zappos culture. And, you know, there's HBR case studies on, on, on that. Um, again, financial accounting, pretty silent on, uh, on, on the culture, pretty silent on the customer support process. Like leave the culture aside because that might be too fluffy for a lot of people to stomach. <laughs> right, but but just look at the at the process. How fast an an inquiry is being answered? How is it answered? How is it managed? Who is managing that? Um, and there is a high correlation between that and the success in in the market, the success of of Zappos in the market. I want to add to that as well because we were talking about the KPIs and the KRIs, and, and we we've been talking before about how long it it could take for for that looking for that process to, to get value. And um, one of the examples we, we use in the book as well is for instance, uh, Airbnb, where, where most of the um, financial analysts and, and people looking at it from a financial perspective, see it as um, an overnight success where all of a sudden they hit market uh, and were like the new thing. Um, but if you look at it from an innovation accounting perspective, there is almost 10 to 12 years before that where they were going through a process of trying to understand how their idea uh, would actually uh, get them to, to a working business model that they had in their mind. And they were, they were exploring, they were looking at the surface they thought they would need. And, and, and um, more importantly, they had a, a future image of that, which means that at first they were, were hitting a pioneering market and trying with them before they would actually hit the mass market. Uh, so the, if the revenue that they made, if they made any revenue at, at all, 
uh, wasn't moving the needle for most corporates or financial analysts at all. And they didn't see it as, as, as anything that you needed to look at. So it was everything below the radar from a financial perspective. Uh, and and um, with my startups, I always use this as an example, because if you look at it, they were actually doing a process of value creating and de-risking um, for a business model that had a lot of potential if you looked at it from an innovation accounting perspective. So those timelines are, are, are too long for any financial analyst to look at, but also they couldn't see anything because they were just looking at this big outcome metrics that they wanted to see, the result metrics, whereas there was a lot of that going on before, um, not, not five years, even seven to 12 years before that. One of the really interesting things there that you mentioned, Esther, is that the vision aspect. And I, I found this interesting because startups, for example, constantly articulate their vision, the founders constantly articulate the vision. So they're going around telling what the future of the organization is going to be, what's it going to look like in the future. But take that back to the example we mentioned there, General Electric, oftentimes that is forgotten in a legacy organization. It's like, now that we made it, we don't need to talk about vision anymore. But in this knowledge economy, selling that vision becomes so important. And the great example, again, is Amazon, like the, the letters to shareholders, the constant articulation of where we're going next, the even the processes within the companies, even though the culture like the Netflix, uh, no real rules, for example, or that memo that was leaked uh, back uh, 10 years ago, uh, showing all the internal process in Netflix, absolutely helped the valuation of the company and helped sell the company. Yes, in organizations as they grow older, or they think they've made it, articulation of vision just about stops. What's your thoughts on this? I was just thinking that it's actually a conflicting thought, right? Because uh, even though vision within the company uh, is not measured as such, right? Because they have to comply to rules regarding financial accounting and, and that's their result. So, so that's how they sort of um, steer the company. But if you look at the, the stock market, um, Innovation is, is being used a lot, especially in marketing. And that's that's why these notes are leaked as well, because innovation and, and this future uh, vision of the company does uh, do something to the value of your company in the stock market. So that already is is a is a, a little bit of a conflict there. So I think that also means that there is a there's an actually need, actual need for for innovation accounting so that you can um, put metrics and data. Uh, to these thoughts and actually show how much of that uh, is true. I would add to this the fact that vision can be measured. Um, obviously, it, it, it might sound like a tweet, <laughs> but uh, to some extent... Did you get can... that? Did you get that? And I'm talking to the publicity department here. Get that. Did you hear what Thomas said? Get it. Get it out there. Hashtag uh, crazy talk. <laughs> <laughs> if you can't measure vision, at least at the very least, you can measure progress towards vision, right? And uh, I think, again, I think that every company should, to some extent, measure that. Like, what's your purpose as a company? Where, why do you exist? Because a lot of companies mistake, uh, mistake the fact that they don't exist to sell a drill. Right, they don't exist to uh, sell. I don't know fire extinguishers. 
they exist to probably save lives in the case of, of a fire extinguishing company, right? Where a company that creates, you know, sprinklers for, for the buildings. They don't exist to sell sprinklers or fire extinguishers or protective equipment. They exist to save lives. Well, you can actually measure if you are moving towards that purpose, if you're moving towards that, that vision. How many lives have we saved as a result of our products last year? Can we improve that next year? We can improve it by obviously making more efficient products, or we can improve it by selling our products to more customers because we are not the number one fire extinguishing supplier in the world. We are probably number 50 or number 5004, right? But uh, we can we can we can safely say that by having more market share we are probably going to save more lives because we're confident our products are better than the competitors. So again, um, we can measure vision. Uh, or at the very least, we can measure our progress towards vision. Um, but again, financial accounting will be pretty bad at telling you if you are moving towards that vision. Again, I'm not bashing at financial accounting. I'm just saying that it's, uh, it's basically like a tool in toolbox. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that the hammer is a bad tool. I'm just saying that the hammer might be a bad tool for some operations. Uh, however, a brilliant tool for other operations. Same goes for same goes for financial accounting. Great for some operations, not so for um, another set of operations. When it comes to vision, pretty bad. When it comes to innovation, pretty bad. When it comes to understanding the performance of the core business, like are we profitable while selling those fire extinguishing equipment, pretty good. Right, innovation accounting or any other form of accounting won't tell you if your company is selling one dollar bills for seventy-five cents. Only financial accounting will tell you that. Yeah, and, and that that brings us beautifully to conundrum number three, which is the accounting system can't measure something that hasn't happened. And you say here, as digital companies become more economically prominent and physical companies become more digital, there is a clear need to for improving the science of accounting and the standards that go with it. There is a need for an update of the financial accounting system to meet the needs of digital driven digital of digital innovation driven economies. Enter innovating. Enter innovation accounting. This bringing an idea to market is not a linear process. You say many unsuccessful small scale experiments go by before something sticks. The only problem with that is that from a financial accounting perspective, the costs incurred in these iterations are recorded, but the savings made by not committing to a wrong avenue are not. I thought that is so important. The problem with financial accounting used in innovation accounting only deepens when we try to put a dollar sign before a learning gathered from a failed experiment. This is such an important point. It's also very difficult to articulate this to a CFO to kind of go, look, we, we, we iterated quickly, we measured, we decided that was not the right way to do it. We saved ourselves possibly millions in the future. And they're kind of going, yeah, but you cost 10 grand or 100 grand iterating with the project. And you're kind of going, you're not getting this. And then that frustration happens. The innovator leaves the organization frustrated. The CFO kind of goes, bring in somebody who knows what they're talking about. And that's the typical cycle that happens. For me, that's an, a very important um, perspective that, that for most um board members is, is hard to get, but that is simply because 
all of their processes and financial accounting again um, value evaluate each project on its own, right? So there's there we want to de-risk things, we want to optimize for for profit. Um, so every project is is looked at as a single project. What, what is the amount of cost that that project is bringing, um, and, and what will it eventually get, give us? Um, in hopefully one to two years time. Uh, whereas if you're going to, to do um, these kind of innovation, what you have to understand is that we're looking at high risk um, investment. These are, are buckets of high, high risk investment. And, and as a venture capitalist, you would never look at high risk investment per project. What you're doing is setting up a fund, um, understanding that you will lose a part of that because only a few will make it. And that's also the way you have to look at uh, these kind of high-risk investment within your company. So what you're doing is setting up a process of high-risk investment, understanding that um, not all of them will make it or only a few of them will actually be successful. Um, and, and then by, by, by having a process trying to, to start off with small amount of investment, um, not de-risking and not going further with, with the ones that do not have any promise at all uh, based on actual data from the market, uh, you can then save that money uh, to double down on those that do have that data from the market with some kind of promise uh, of the possibilities that they show. So this this way of looking at one project at a time doesn't work if you if you want to do high-risk high investment because um, you, you will lose everything right if, if, if i go to the casino and then every time decide whether or not i put my money on it i probably lose a lot of money usually when you go to the casino what you do is say this is my limit right if i go over this hundred i'm not doing it anymore because you know that you were go you are going to lose um some of that money or all of it even um so it's just a, a different way of looking at it um but because of because the process is always sort of look the same or are associated with the same processes within your core company. We, we have a stage gate. We know about investing. Um, we think it's just um, one step further in risk or that we have to ha have to take the same processes, but then understand there's a little bit more risk. But in fact, what, what, what you have to understand is that it runs per perpendicular to what you're doing because of the risk. So you have to have have your have your perspective slammed into a different directions and understand this is not something you can do project per project. This is something that you have to judge, evaluate in a completely different way. Something that uh, Dan and I talked about last time when we talked about your last book, The Corporate Startup, is that you don't only diversify with your projects, but you diversify with the business model supporting those projects as well. Because if one business model gets taken down, then the whole organization doesn't die as well. There's a great analogy I find in nature that I'd love to share with you. So if you take a family of ants or a, a colony of ants, and you drop a piece of information like an apple into the into the environment, only about 80% of the ants will go to that piece of information to, to check it out to eat from it. And the reason is the other 20% will spread out looking for other opportunities, maybe a strawberry or something like that. But also in case the apple is poisoned, so the whole colony doesn't get destroyed. And I always think of that as a great analogy for exactly what you're doing here. You know, 
that you can't put all your eggs in one basket or your apples in this case, you need to actually spread your bets because that's actually where the opportunity is. But it's the actual accounting of that. And if you think of a large organization, there's often experiments going on, and they don't even have any way to capture those or to actually show them to a CFO to go, well, look, we tried all this different stuff. One part of the organization isn't talking to the other part of the organization. And oftentimes, they're running the same experiments. And this is why we have such a need for a common language, which brings me to the next point, because you talk about the prerequisites of innovation accounting. And the first and the foremost one is to agree what innovation accounting means or innovation itself, you say here, measuring innovation can only be done if we all agree what innovation is. The importance of clarifying what everyone around the table means when they say innovation became particularly relevant and apparent to you, Dan, you tell us in the book after an engagement with an exhibition and trade fair organization company, maybe you'll share this example, because this brought it to life. We have experienced this in, uh, in, in many organizations following, but also before uh, that particular encounter that we mentioned in the book. We just, uh, we just wanted to present that because that was a very clear cut one. Um, it's very important to define what innovation means for, for you because every organization uh, has a different meaning and a different definition of innovation. And within the organization, different people might mean different things depending on who they are personally, but also where they sit in the organization. Some people might consider innovation to be something around incrementally improving an existing offering, making it a slightly bit better this year than it was a year ago. We're making this model a bit more efficient than the previous model. Uh, and again, nothing wrong with that. Other people in the same organization might not consider that as innovation. They might consider that as business as usual. And they only see innovation in, quote, um, you know, flying cars or teleporting or something like that, um, which is fine because that's who they are and that's where they sit in the organization. And in all fairness, um, an organization actually needs all types of innovation, not just incremental or not just disruptive or not just, um, you know, adjacent. Uh, they, an organization to survive needs all of them. However, they need to agree whenever they speak about innovation, what do they actually mean? Because you can't use a word to mean three, four, five, ten things. And uh, we were working with this, uh, with this exhibition in the Middle East and, uh, the the CEO was uh, always pushing uh, on uh, on his uh, on his peers to become more innovative. He wanted to see more innovation coming out of uh, coming out of the innovation department of the lab, coming from from product. And uh, it was like, guys, you need to be more innovative. And there were some directors there that uh, were a bit baffled by that. Like, what do you mean we are not innovative? We are. Look. Uh, now we people can enter the conference with without having a need to have a steward there to check their uh, to check their badge. We can do it through QRs, where they can book their spot at um, at the lunch table through an app, where they can navigate the conference hall through um, you know a, a Bluetooth enabled uh, application that's going to tell you where each exhibitor is and where you are relative to them, so on and so forth. Um, and, and he was right in saying that, like, no, I, I, I was there not contradicting that particular director in any way, but what this CEO actually wanted to see 
he wanted to see the use of VR or AR in conferencing. So instead of flying to Abu Dhabi or, or Dubai, where they were holding these exhibitions, I can attend the exhibition or at least some parts of it from my home, put in a VR set, and then I would be there virtually at least attending the keynotes or interacting maybe with some, with some vendors. Uh, they were both right, but uh, the problem that this particular organization had was that uh, they didn't agree upfront on what innovation is. How do they define when they use the word innovation? Because uh, in the CEO's view, the QR codes or the, uh, the Bluetooth-enabled map was incremental improvement, was something that the organization should do no matter what because they need to keep up with times. And uh, in the eyes of the director was like, no, look, we're actually doing innovation because we have the QRs and we're super innovative. So it was uh, a, a bit of a misalignment between, between, uh, between the two gentlemen. Uh, obviously, they, uh, they sorted it out and they, the, the organization finally arrived to a, to a definition of innovation. And I think it's, it's very important. And we are not the only ones that say that it's important to have a definition of innovation. If you if you pick up uh, Scott Anthony's book, the latest one, uh, Eat, Sleep, Innovate, uh, they present there that DBS, the bank in, in Singapore, uh, has a very clear definition of innovation. And that's not a random thing that they've done. That's not just a nice-to-have checkbox. You get to hire Dan and Esther for a lot of money to create a one-sentence thing. <laughs> That's not the purpose. The purpose is to get alignment within the organization because uh, without or in the absence of that alignment, people will start investing differently. The, the director will start investing in QRs and, and stuff that totally makes sense. Whether the CEO is expecting VR headsets and augmented reality and, 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 and stuff like that. Um, again, the budget is finite. And, uh, you know, it's only $100 we can invest in innovation. What, do we're, what, what are we going to invest it on? Is it the QR code or is it the, the VR headset? Or what percentage of that budget do we invest in one versus the other? This can be solved by having very clear definitions of innovation. Again, we are not saying that organization only needs one type of innovation, but they need to define what innovation means. And then they can invest across their types of innovations. They can invest across different things, but they need to have a very clear definition of innovation. Yeah, I, I, I always think it's, it's the most important uh, prerequisite of, of innovation, not only because of that alignment and, and, and expectation uh, of, of the board of people, but also because of resources and the success uh, of innovation. Um, it's so it's management and resources as, as well that that um, suffer uh, if you do not have a clear understanding or definition of innovation. Um, I had um, a team coming to me of two people for for a very large organization um, that were actually um, the innovation team of that organization. So someone in the board said we need innovation, and they pointed that to these two people to be responsible for innovation within a company so i started talking to them and asked them what they were, were responsible for and they were responsible for a lot of different things for uh changing um uh, culture and people um 
education uh, around mindset in, in, in innovation. They were responsible for the, the, the legacy systems, IT systems within the company that because they otherwise couldn't build new things. And they were responsible for, for new ideas. Now, two people having to do that, we can already see that's impossible, right? Um, so it has to do with, with resources. So who is responsible for what kind of innovation is, is just as important. Where, where do we put that responsibility? Could it be different uh, business units, for instance, for these different types? But it's also a tr- um, uh, um, the managing of that innovation because if you um, even if you sort of have a definition of in- innovation but it's not clear enough um, and you start managing uh, and understanding these types of innovation um, by the same processes of your core ca- company and do not understand where to put in innovation accounting and where the financial accounting comes in. Um, and you start to manage digitalization, for instance, in the same way that you do new ideas um, that are, are com- more complex, then what you get is that every single time a project right get evaluated um, the one that will tell you uh, they will have their OI the quickest with the least cost will always be prioritized over everything else. So that means your complex innovation will never have a chance to start to fly. Um, so it's very important that it's not just it's not just the the uh, alignment or expectation. It's it's the management and the resources that suffer uh, as well. One of the places I saw this play out was in the boardroom itself. So I worked in an organization that had multiple CEOs. They were business unit, essentially, uh, leaders. And we'd be in the boardroom, I'd be presenting on digital transformation. And there was a very mixed feeling over what innovation and digital transformation was. And I was like, well, they're not the same thing. Like you said, they're the legacy IT systems transforming them is not innovation. That's business as usual. Dan's QR codes for, you know, ticket entry or booking your meal is is business as usual. We should be doing that anyway. And in my head, you're kind of going looking and they're showing on their board slides and you're kind of going, that's not innovation. <laughs> so that that was a real frustration for me. The other one and I think this is really important for those people who are considering a career in this industry, particularly if you're going to join an organization. One of the things I do when I'm going to work with an organization is do a chemistry meeting. And the chemistry meeting is kind of like what I do. I do executive coaching as well to see are you a right fit for the coachee, but also for the organization. But one of the questions I asked is to your point, what type of innovation are you looking for? And oftentimes, they don't know what you're talking about. And this creates a real dilemma. Because oftentimes, if you're somebody going to join a company, and you want that head of innovation role, which sounds great, you don't want to be looking like a problem child before you even get the job and asking these kind of questions. And it creates creates this real dilemma. But it's so important. I often tell people, you're going to fail or you're going to be frustrated if you don't get this clear up front. And oftentimes when they ask this, they're kind of going, well, we don't even know. That's why we want to hire you. And you're kind of going, well, I need to know because I need to know, do I have the skill set? 
do I have the budget to make transformational information uh, innovation, which is a huge job, not incremental? All these things come to mind. And oftentimes people go, oh, that person was too much trouble. Let's get somebody who'll just tick the box and we say we have a head of innovation. Especially that ticking the box, right? And and I've seen um, in, heads of innovation or innovation managers start like that and, and say, well, well, we'll take this and and we'll start with this expectation it's not right yet but we'll 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 try to create some room uh for everything to succeed later on um but usually what you see is after 3 years if if there's not a real success then maybe the company decides that it doesn't work for them at all so being very clear up front and asking these questions i think is one of the most important things to do um before setting up anything, be be clear about also what the what the um, what the board thinks about that direction, right? So if they feel that it's important right now to um, do the uh, digital renovation ra- rather than the transformation, because that's more important, because they do need to do that first, and there's so much to be done first. Then maybe there is no need to do the transformation or they don't want to do the transformation. So let's hold off on that. And and it doesn't make sense for you then to start this new system. That's also a decision. That's also a vision, as long as you're clear about that. One of the terms you probably heard, you probably have your own versions of this from from your different territories is uh, lipstick on a pig. Have you heard of that one where it's just like, it's like, it's still a pig, but let's make it look a bit pretty with some innovation or rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. So the business model still sinking, but uh, damn, it look good when it sinks. But uh, I wanted to get to something, Dan, you, you touched on earlier on. And it was the distinction between uh, KPIs and KRIs and dist- demystifying KPIs. Because just as agreeing a common, a common language for what innovation means is essentially important, so is understanding the metrics and the KPIs become really important. You make a key point here, you say KPIs should be put in place not to punish employees, but to help everyone move in the same direction. If a KPI is not leading to positive behavioral change, it's the wrong KPI or it's poorly communicated. They are there for alignment, not punishment. I thought at this stage, I'll share one of the beautiful illustrations for those who haven't read the corporate startup startup or this book. It's beautifully illustrated by Esther. And I'm going to share one of those illustrations now. And perhaps you'll talk to this while describing to us what the difference between KPIs and KRIs are, and take us through this diagram. I think it illustrates what what Dan already talked about earlier, right? So it's it's the result um, indicators that that can only show what has been, um, and 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 the, that you and the. The performance indicators that show what kind of activities are happening, and then I think that that is the whole cycle of strategy and 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 vision that Jen Dan just expa- explained. The only thing that is uh, added to this is that if you look at these performance indicators, um, that you have lagging and lead- leading KPIs. They're worth explaining. Rita McGrath, uh, who's a, a guest of the show, friend of the show, talks about this a lot. The the fact that we use lagging KPIs oftentimes as the measurement doesn't show any vision towards the future. It's all stuff that's happened and may, many times pr- 
strategies that were implemented three years plus ago coming to life today. So they don't actually show us where we're going and they don't, they sometimes that lag can actually lead to decline within an organization that doesn't manifest for some time yet. So, so what I usually tell um, startups that need indicators um, to understand if their decisions are actually making results is that it doesn't make sense to measure everything, especially when you're a small team, because that you can measure everything, but it doesn't mean anything. And it's important to understand that every indicator either tra- can change behavior or measure how you change that behavior, behavior or uh, be helpful in you making decisions uh, on how to reach your um, uh, objections. So these are important to understand if, you, if you're looking at indicators and what indicators you want to measure. It, it should help you make a decision or it should help you understand how you're changing uh, behavior or, or something that you want to reach. If it doesn't help you do that, then um, the indicator doesn't make sense to measure at all. The same thing as uh, as in product development. Like we took a lot of inspiration when we when we wrote that from from our expertise in in product development. Um, you can measure a lot of things when you're when you're building a new product. You can you can measure millions of things when you when you're when you're building a new product. Uh, but what you need to measure is uh, obviously stuff uh, that has an impact. And the way the way you know if something has an impact is um, if as a result of that particular measure, you are making some changes to your product that influence, in a positive or negative way, uh, your customer base. It might just be that you do a release and then everybody's leaving the application or is no longer using it. Still, it was a behavioral change. Negative, obviously, but it still was a behavioral change. So you want to be able to measure stuff that uh, leads to behavioral change. In the case, uh, in the case of innovation accounting, we are looking at behavioral change at the level of um, product teams, at the way decisions are being taken, at the ways things are communicated, how fast things are moving through the funnel. Um, again, it's it's very important to um, understand the difference between a vanity indicator and an actionable one. Actionable one leads to behavior. Vanity leads to you know looking good on a po- on on a, on a PowerPoint presentation or looking good on Twitter or whatever. Like I have a million downloads on my app. Yeah, however nobody's using it, but I have a million downloads on my app. That's that's the that's the best example of a vanity metric. Um, the opposite of that would be uh, I have ten thousand users actively using five days a week my app and they stay with my app for nine months that's very concrete very actionable might lead to behavioral change on my side as a product owner but might lead to behavioral change on side of the customer if i do the wrong order or the right release for for an update um now this said i don't want to start the conversation on leading on or leading versus lagging because uh, this opens the Pandora box. Uh, we actually, and in all fairness, we had it in the book at one point, leading versus lagging. There was an entire two pages on that. And we decided to remove it because we showed the book early on to <clears throat> some people that we, we, we highly respect. And uh, half of them said, this is great. The other half was like, no, you're getting it all wrong. And I said, okay, I'm not going to start that uh, that that conversation in the book. 
uh, everything to some extent can be viewed as lagging or everything to some extent can be viewed as leading. I think if you are listening to this and you want to apply innovation accounting or any other form of measures to either your organization to a certain product, focus more on the difference between vanity and actionable uh, indicators. Forget the whole conversation about leading versus lagging, because yes, you might have a lagging indicator, but it will inform a future decision or can predict what's going to happen in the future. Is this leading or, or lagging? Like, it's, not, it's not clear even for us. And we studied this. We, we, we read a lot of books on the topic. So this is why we decided to like stay out of, the, stay out of, this, of this whole conversation and focus it on stuff that is applicable in the real world. Is it vanity? Is it actionable? If you want to understand um, real quick what vanity metrics are, everything that's going up and to the right are vanity metrics. If you really want to have uh, metrics that, are, that you can steer on, that you, want, that, need, that you can understand behavior with, dig deeper because you have to understand the pain to be able to change that. So up and to the right, probably a vanity metric. When I was in the boardroom again, Sometimes, you know, they'd be showing marketing slides and it'd be like, we look at this, we had a full page takeover of the we transfer page. And I'm like, oh, how many people went there? <laughs> like a full page takeover, we transfer page, very few people use that on a regular basis. This was like 10 years ago. I was like, going, the thing's only started and nobody even knows it exists. But everybody's like, wow, that's great marketing. And I'm like, going, going. because to your point, Esther, the next question should be, how many people saw it? How many people clicked on it? What action did they take when they clicked on it? And what action did you want them to take? You know, even a very basic thing like that uh, shows that you need to dig much deeper. And even with all of these things that you're men men mentioning, you can probably only focus on one of them to change before you can change the other one. So that's also important to understand. And the other thing, and, and this is one of the core reasons I do this show and why I'm so glad to have you guys on is because the need for learning with innovation, innovation and learning go hand in hand, because we need to constantly upskill, learn new things, let go of old things like the old metrics in financial systems, etc. Because it's fair to say that most financial people, those people who have got to the top of organizations today, have learned to do that based on old systems, and they have had no formal entrepreneurial education or innovation education, etc. So they need this new mindset in order to be able to know what they're measuring. So let's use that then as a way to move on to the principles of innovation accounting systems. You introduce this by saying measuring innovation has long been perceived as the cornerstone of innovation account innovation management. Even so, most of today's organizations only take innovation measurements sporadically. It's useful to take a close look at the principles of an effective innovation accounting system. But before we do, let's look at some of the things today's companies get wrong about measuring innovation. Perhaps we'll start with some of the myths of measuring innovation. Myth one, for example, R&D expenditure is a good indicator of innovation. This one was already also mentioned in the corporate startup book, right? Where where we actually had uh, done research and 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 uh, where it was actually shown that uh, the the companies that that 
had a, a, an investment in, in R&D uh, were not um, correlated to innovation and, 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 uh, and new business models at all, so to speak. So there was no um, correlation between, between the two if you looked at R&D expenditure. So I think that that one is, is still really important to understand because what, what we do with uh, R&D, right? So what, what do we do with these discoveries uh, uh, other than just count them in the number of patents that we have? Uh, it is more important. So can we actually use that discovery or, or patent uh, and make that into something um, new so, uh, or a business model, something that, that we can when um, we can have market share with or impact people with is far more important than the discovery itself, right? So what you do with it is where the innovation comes in. Um, and, and now that uh, uh, the digital world is accelerating, um, that gap becomes, becomes even more uh, evident. That, that gap becomes more evident. Uh, and we need something to convert the patents, the explorations with a process um, for creating value with those uh, discoveries. Yeah, and there's a key point I wanted to emphasize here, you say what R&D spending seems to generate is an increase in the number of patents held by a company. And while having more patents can mean more possibilities sitting on a library of unused patents is nowhere near what it means to be innovative. If every patent represents new applications or and opportunities, then simply amassing them without bringing them to market or failing to bring them to market in some ways represents a strange kind of complacency with the status quo. Innovation does not mean securing patents or coming up with new ideas. It also means doing something with them to just bring it all together as you do in the book. Let's use that as to move a way to move on to myth number two, which is innovation can't be measured because innovation is creativity and creativity can't be measured. You say here, there's a common tendency to conflate creativity with innovation. Management often sees startups coming up with great new products, which motivates managers to pursue the development of similarly cool, shiny new products. Uh, it's, it's a very funny one because uh, that's a typical mistake being made by people that haven't worked in innovation. Uh, it's a typical mistake that, you know, somebody that hasn't seen innovation is doing whenever they refer to innovation or whenever they speak with people in innovation. Like, that's a typical mistake my mom will probably do, right, when when she when she describes what I'm doing. Like, oh, my, my son works in innovation. So he's playing with post-it notes every day. It's like, yeah, I wish I did, to be honest with you. And um, if that's not the case, then I should probably actually start working in innovation if it's so cool over there. Uh, actually, you know, like anybody that has worked in innovation, everybody that had, that had their own startup can tell you that the creativity process ends probably half an hour, one hour into the life cycle of your idea, of your business idea, right? That's when probably creativity ends, half an hour or one hour in. For the next 10 years, however, <laughs> you'll have to do anything but creativity, or you might have short bursts of creativity Every now and then, when you have to have, when you have to solve a certain issue, I don't know. I'm looking for a manufacturer, or I'm trying to improve this particular design of the product, so it reduces the cost or the time it takes to produce it, or whatever. I might need some creativity there, but I can tell you, 99.9% of the time, and I'm not exaggerating, this is spent in doing non-fun stuff. 
right? And that non-fun stuff is actually managerial in nature. It's actually, you know, more related to product development, more relating to a management discipline. And trust me, we're pretty good at measuring management disciplines. I mean, we've been doing it for, as I said, probably about 500 years, and in particular in the past 70. So if we can do it for a management discipline, why not treat innovation as a management discipline? Because innovation is pretty much a management discipline minus the 0.01%, which is creativity. Great. Don't measure that, that creativity bit. I'm fine. Leave that out. <laughs> measure the other 99.9% of the activity. Like, Don't measure how many ideas were created during the hackathon, although that might be an interesting indicator, but measure what's happening with the ideas afterwards. How fast are they being developed? What traction do they have? How fast are they moving through your organization? What blockers are they encountering? Um, what's preventing them from growing? All these things around the performance of individual ideas, those things can be measured. The, leave that 1% out. It's funny. I, I was only saying this to my kids the other day. So my kids love Lego. Lego's been such a savior for us during COVID, <laughs> during the lockdown. But uh, they developed really well into Lego. So they're doing adult Lego for a while. And the eight-year-old, for example, uh, he said to me, Dad, will you sort all the pieces for me into colors? <laughs> right? And I was like, oh, yeah, good good idea here. Good, good, good thinking. But, you know, buddy, what do you enjoy most about this? And he's like, well, putting it together and seeing what it looks like at the end. And I was like, oh, yeah, but there's lots of lessons in doing Lego, isn't there? tell me one of the lessons and he goes well you have to do a lot of boring stuff to do the good stuff and i was like everything son everything in life is like that you want to write a book the book is actually the the end part of seeing the book but you got to go through the slog of the daily grind of showing up of getting rejected all that stuff is life you know and i thought it's exactly like working in innovation it's not as shiny it's not about you know swiss balls and post-it notes and snooker tables it's that it's like it's like writing this book right i mean nobody knows about the effort that we put in and the frustration and the weekend spent and all the parties that we said we're not going to attend or barbecues with friends or movies we haven't watched to be on your podcast people just see this podcast people see this this one hour where they see the half an hour keynote on a stage well, trust me, there's been a lot of movies that I haven't watched to be able to be on that stage. And, uh, you know, bordering now a bit motivational conversation, uh, a football game is lost in training. It's not lost on the pitch. It's not lost in those 90 minutes. If, you, if your team succeeds in those 90 minutes, it's because of the training. You can't, you can't just not do anything for one week, show up at the derby on, on, on Sunday and hope to win. It's, it's not how it works. Same with innovation. It's not like I'm going to do nothing for an entire quarter, and then I'm going to have half an hour, three hours of brilliant creativity, and I'm going to solve everything. That's not how innovation works. Same with the book. It's not like I'm going to do nothing and then show up on your podcast and be all expert. It's funny. I, I was only saying this to my kids the other day. So my kids love Lego. Lego's been such a savior for us during COVID, <laughs> during the lockdown. But uh, they developed really well into Lego. So they're doing adult Lego for a while. And the eight-year-old, for example, uh, he said to me, Dad, 
will you sort all the pieces for me into colors <laughs> right and i was like oh yeah good good idea here good 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 thinking but you know buddy what do you enjoy most about this and he's like well putting it together and seeing what it looks like at the end and i was like going yeah but there's lots of lessons in doing lego isn't there tell me one of the lessons and he goes well you have to do a lot of boring stuff to do the good stuff and i was like everything son everything in life is like that you want to write a book the book is actually the the end part seeing the book but you got to go through the slog of the daily grind of showing up of getting rejected all that stuff is life you know and i thought it's exactly like working in innovation it's not as shiny it's not about you know swiss balls and post-it notes and snooker tables it's like writing this book right i mean Nobody knows about the effort that we put in and the frustration and the weekend spent and all the parties that we said we're not going to attend or barbecues with friends or movies we haven't watched to be on your podcast. People just see this podcast. People see this, this one hour where they see the half an hour keynote on a stage. Well, trust me, there's been a lot of movies that I haven't watched to be able to be on that stage. And, uh, you know, bordering now a bit motivational conversation a football game is lost in training. It's not lost on the pitch. It's not lost in those 90 minutes. If you if your team succeeds in those 90 minutes, it's because of the training. You can't you can't just not do anything for one week, show up at the derby on, on, on Sunday and hope to win. It's, it's not how it works. Same with innovation. It's not like I'm going to do nothing for an entire quarter and then I'm going to have half an hour, three hours of brilliant creativity, and I'm going to solve everything. That's not how innovation works. Same with the book. It's not like I'm going to do nothing and then show up on your podcast and be all expert. It's funny, actually, because you, you mentioned Scott Anthony, and uh, he's been on the show multiple times. Great guy. And we were talking about this before, where oftentimes what also happens is Sometimes an organization will hire a head of innovation or he or she will come in and expect to have lots of fun and have lots of fun and spend a lot of money. And the organization kind of trusted them and gave them a loose leash and then turned around and kind of going, but they haven't done anything. And that kind of ruins it for the next person. It ruins innovation in the company because it's given a bad name to innovation. And to your point, that's not what it is. It's actually a discipline and this is one of the things about innovating accounting, innovation accounting, is it actually helps with the discipline. It's also a, the, the perspective of how that works with innovation. If, if a lot of companies look at startups, what they see is the success, right? It's the same thing that Dan just told about the book. I have a lot of um, uh, corporate employees that come to me and say, I want to drink coffee because what you do is so exciting and I want to be in innovation, I want to be in startups. And then I talk to them and explain that most of the startups that I work with is it's extremely hard work and 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 they they just give themselves completely right so they they go through all of their savings and their pension fund they they sleep on people's couches they sell their houses uh, for five years even before anything happens at all maybe nothing happens um, and it's really hard work um, and and then when they start to realize they're they're going back to their corporate positions again, but um, one of the quotes that I have on my side is uh, is actually innovation is as much a trait as it is about creativity, and you can learn the trait because there's so many 
ups and downs, complexity and uncertainty, that you need this structured, systematic approach towards how you're going to do that. Uh, and that is something that you can learn. That's a that's a process that that needs to be ingrained um, through new habits, so that you can create that new mindset. And then when you've mastered that, you can allow yourself to be a little bit more creative again. We're we're like uh, the don't listen to the show if you want to go into innovation. <laughs> we're like the triage nurse. Don't what are you crazy? So uh, let, let's move on. I was going to go through all the myths, but there's so much. We, we haven't even really got into the book much yet. <laughs> but uh, let's move on to uh, the principles of an innovation accounting system. You tell us here, although a driving force for growth in most comp industries, innovation differs from company to company. This is absolutely core. But be it in banking, in automotive or FMCG, the uncertainty associated with innovation still needs to be managed. And in order to manage something, it first needs to be measured and understood. I'm going to share here another one of Esther's great illustrations. And perhaps we can use that as a guide for our viewers to describe and to see the these different principles of innovation accounting. Again, let's have empathy for those people who are only listening. Most of our sh uh, listeners are listeners, not viewers. And I'll share this in the meantime. Um, uh, it's an illustration of the, the six principles that are important to, to have uh, when having an innovation accounting system uh, within your company. Um, and that relates to the, the, the behavior of that innovation accounting system and what it should do in the first place. So what is important uh, to understand if you um, apply an innovation accounting system within your company? Um, and, and I think that Maybe some of them are, are evident, uh, but some of them might also be um, misunderstood or not seen immediately, right? So um, the first one, for instance, is, is company-wide, which, which is important because it's just as, as important in, as the understanding of what innovation means within your company, right? So as soon as you have this understanding how to measure what, so we use rule book one, uh, for these kinds of innovation, because that's our core rule book. book uh, and all of the, these processes that we have will work for these kinds of innovation. But we have a different rule book or playbook for, for this kind of innovation. And that works for the entire company, because we need to manage these projects in the same way to be able to, to compare and invest in them uh, properly. So I think that one... Um, is, is just as important as defining innovation within your company. To, to add to what, uh, to what Esther said, I mean, we, we identified six principles for innovation accounting because, um, again, every organization is different. And uh, when you build a system for measuring innovation, it needs to reflect the reality of your company. So copying somebody else's homework will not necessarily cut it. I mean, it will probably work 30% of the time or in 30% of the cases of the things that you have to measure, but it won't be perfect. And again, we are not coming and saying, use everything that's in the book and then you're going to be saved. You're going to have everything. Uh, we pretty much wrote the book in order to inspire people, start from something rather than starting from scratch. Use the indicators we propose there, or use the system we propose there, but by all means, please customize it. Please customize it, tailor it to, to your context, to your organization, to your peculiarities. Another important principle to follow 
if if Esther liked the first principle a lot, I'm a big fan of the second principle. Uh, and uh, we we have six kids together. All these six principles. I have to have my favorite, and she has to have her favorite. Uh, my my favorite is uh, is principle number two. It's uh, it's abstraction, and this uh, this came from a conversation I had uh, with a good friend of ours, uh, Matt. It, it's an Australian guy, brilliant. I remember being being in Sydney discussing innovation accounting early on with him before even the book was created or stuff. It's just like, how do you measure innovation? We had a very geeky conversation. I said, I totally enjoyed that afternoon. Uh, and uh, then he mentioned abstraction to me and I said, well, tell me more about it. And then we started developing the concept together as we were discussing. Uh, abstraction is uh, actually a term that we imported from uh, IT. Um, you're, uh, you're on applications on your phone, right? And uh, what's happening, what resources are needed for an application to run are communicated, but only in part to the operating system. The operating system doesn't know exactly what the application is doing. It just knows that it requires that amount of, uh, of operating memory and that amount of hardware space. So what the, what the app is doing is abstracting what it needs to the level that the system would be, uh, operating system would be interested uh, in knowing about the app. Much in the same way, abstraction can be applied when measuring innovation. We can't expect a CEO, and, and Aiden, you've been on boards, we can't expect the board to be uh, interested or even have the time, leave aside the interest, but have the time to look at, um, let's say, a certain team's learning velocity or a certain team's speed, or a certain team's customer acquisition cost, or a certain parameter around cost of failure. However, they are interested in macro stuff, like macro indicators. How much does innovation cost? How fast are we moving through a funnel as an aggregate of all the things that we are doing, as an average of everything that we're doing? Uh, what's the survivability rate of our of our innovation funnel? All those things are important. However, in order to do that, you have to have an abstraction. You have to be able to take information from the team level, aggregate it, and abstract it to the level of the um, of the executive team. That that is a very important principle. And how does this look in practice? Essentially, if you are putting together some indicators at the team level. And these things cannot be averaged. These things cannot be aggregated. These things cannot be extrapolated to a macro indicator that the CEO would be interested in. Better not measure it. It doesn't offer a lot of value. Innovation accounting needs to provide value to every layer of the organization, not just the teams, not just the middle managers, not just the executives, for everyone. Everyone needs to be informed, and innovation accounting needs to change their particular behavior with respect to investing or with respect to improving that innovation system. So um, uh, the abstraction principle helps take information from one layer and moving it upstream or downstream, depending on how you want to look at it, uh, to the next layer and still retain the value and provide value for that particular layer. That, that's essentially what abstraction is. As I said, we can't expect the CEO to, uh, that I don't know, manages, a, a portfolio of 150 ideas, and that's not a lot, to be, to be interested in the learning velocity of every single one. He would be probably more interested in how fast 
ideas on average reach a certain maturity level? Or what's the cost of failure? Or what's the survivability on those 150 ideas? How many of them are going to be alive in three years from now? Those are going to be indicators that can inform some actions for somebody at, at, at his role. I think it's so important to, if you tie that back to the common language of an organization, so what is innovation, then to what Esther said about company-wide being co company-wide, and then you go, well, sometimes I can't, I can't use abstraction if the level of understanding is variant across the boardroom, for example, or across the executive team. They need to be up to the same level of understanding for me to use abstraction. Otherwise, sometimes you get this effect where you try to use abstraction to skip the details that they don't want to know about. And then you'll have one executive kind of nudging the other and kind of going, oh, he's bluffing or he's making it up here. And you kind of go, well, I'm not going to go into the details now. So you can be sabotaged quite easily here when you're an innovator. I find that that and that's a key point as well to understand that you can be sabotaged very, very easily when you're dealing with the future in a legacy organization. And that's why the key to having an innovation accounting system is so, so important. What I saw with one of the organizations that I helped is that um, if the board isn't on board also with this abstraction um, level, as well as understanding what innovation goes in what system, right, then um, they will still be... Um, prone to judge single innovations uh, on the basis of maybe a pitch deck or how they're doing because they want this innovation so bad. So they always have their, their favorites. Uh, and one of the organizations that I was working with, the CEO still wanted to see every single project, as he, he said, instead of looking at it as a funnel uh, and have that abstraction level. Uh, and one of these projects became, became the organization's innovation mascot. Uh, it was his favorite, so it was funded outside of the innovation budget, um, and it just needed to succeed because it became one of the innovation mascots, right? So, and what happens to an innovation mascot is is basically that everyone will uh, ultimately cuddle it to death because it's been out there, it's been communicated, uh, the, the CEO has put money on it, and then it's been cuddled to death because probably it will implode and nothing will happen after it. So I think that's uh, that's a really big danger of, of not having understanding of innovation, not doing it company-wide, and not having that abstraction level. So I hope by now we understand how the deployment of a common language and development framework can unite people in delivering innovation. But let's move on now to consider how the framework might be constructed and some of the key areas for consideration along the way. In the book, you choose five areas. Again, I'll remind our audience that frameworks work best when designed specifically for your organization individually. So you say this in the book, your comments here are with that in mind that every organization is different. I'm going to share for those people watching us on YouTube, the great illustration here that brings us through these five stages. Yeah, essentially, this also is tied to something that we discussed earlier, you know, prerequisites. And Esther spoke earlier about the prerequisite of having a definition of innovation in your organization. Uh, I would say that the second one, and probably equally important, is to have a very clearly defined product lifecycle framework. In the absence of that, you can't do innovation accounting, because uh, in essence, 
as uh, as Tenda used to say in uh, in the um, um, in the corporate startup book, innovation accounting is about asking the right question at the right time. Uh, what does right question mean and what does right time mean? Well, right time means stage of your product development cycle and, and uh, right question means obviously something that is related to what the, comp- what the team is trying to solve at that moment in time. So it's very important uh, whenever you start setting up your innovation accounting system to start by developing your, your company's product lifecycle. We propose in the book uh, five stages but it can very well be two. It can very well be seven. Again, by all means, please create your own product lifecycle. But uh, remember that in the absence of a product lifecycle, you can't do innovation accounting because the indicators and the key success factors will vary from stage one to stage two. What you are measuring at stage one is going to be totally different than what you are measuring at stage two, three, four, and five. So it's very important to start by having a very robust and agreed upon, very important, agreed upon product lifecycle in your organization. If department A is using a product lifecycle and department B is using a different product lifecycle, you won't have unity. You won't be able to deploy uh, a robust innovation accounting system in your organization. So I think innovation accounting starts with a definition of innovation and a product lifecycle. You can't talk about innovation accounting if you do that. We keep saying that innovation accounting is not for immature organizations. If you don't have a product lifecycle in your organization, it means that you're um, not mature enough innovation-wise to even consider needing innovation accounting. Uh, innovation accounting is, 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 is a first-world problem if you want, right? If you, haven't yet, if you haven't yet started your innovation journey and you're just now thinking about doing a lab or kicking off some ideas, you don't need innovation accounting. You just, you just don't need that. It's, it, first of all, you can't apply it. Second of all, most likely people won't, won't understand. Won't understand. They don't know how to put it in practice. If you have been doing innovation for quite some time and you are a mature organization, you have done, uh, you, you've been through a lot, baptism by fire, if you want, uh, you, will, uh, you will probably see a lot of benefit from having innovation accounting. But everything is tied to your product lifecycle. Why? Because product lifecycle essentially means process. And as we said earlier, we need to measure the process in order to be able to influence results. You want to influence results of innovation? You need to measure the process of innovation. What does what does the innovation process mean? Or what does it look like? Well, it's your company's product lifecycle framework. Stage gating, if you want. Some people are, are using stage gating. I don't want to call it stage gates because stage gates have a bad rap. But um, essentially, what are the phases ideas have to pass through from the moment it is conceived by somebody and all the way to the moment it's in the market, successful, either by itself or integrated within a business unit. For me, it's important that that framework is is not just your product lifecycle framework. Uh, as Dan said, it's related to the process, but that is your de-risking process, right? So it's actually connected to the to the building blocks of of a business model uh, and what needs to have focus before uh, other things, right? So it 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 helps you understand. Um, the progress of that de-risking towards a, a working business model. And, and that is one of the, the, the key factors of having a, a framework like that. Um, there's even people from, from compliance and uh, risk and compliance right now that are approaching me and say, you have found a de-risking me- uh, methodology. 
can we use it within our organization? Because this is something that we need. There's too much risk in innovation. So that framework is actually part of that de-risking process connected to the building blocks of a, of a working business model. I wanted to jump to the idea of a venture board because we're running out of time. And I think this is so important for those, again, back to Dan's point, those in the first world of innovation, those who can afford to do this. And I'm going to tee you up here, starting first with managerial innovation accounting, because you say measuring innovation at product team level is not enough to have an an innovation accounting system. Innovation has become an important activity for the survivability and future profitability of a company. Therefore, more and more stakeholders are drawn to the process of building the company's futures offerings. Keeping one group of stakeholders in the dark is not the way forward. That's why being measured at product team level needs to make its way to other stakeholders throughout the company. Here you share a cautionary tale, and I'm going to share this to our audience to prime the pump for you guys to talk through this. You said investing in innovation. At one point, you were called to help a European financial services company that only had a small number of initiatives in the pipeline. The initiatives were reporting every other week directly into a stakeholder in the company who was involved in the process. The meetings you were asked to observe looked more like command and controlled status meetings than anything else. And during these meetings, the board and line managers were asked questions and were assessing the team's progress against indicators which were not really relevant to the actual development product maturity. This is one of the common problems that happens in innovation. There's no processes around the ongoing status, or if there's a status update at all. Oftentimes, it's like big hackathon, loads of ideas, and it fizzles out over time. I'd love you to share this and the idea then behind it of venture boards, those people responsible throughout an organization loosely connected. It goes back to the mindset of of what you're doing, right? So I uh, that 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 whole process uh, of complex innovation runs perpendicular to what you do in the in the organization by evaluating every uh, project on its own um which means that if you want to make decisions uh on your investments in these high risk um innovations that you need to have people that can decide with that mindset whether or not uh, these ideas can continue so you need to have um, a board, so to say, that looks at it uh, at it differently in terms of that high risk investment, so that they can understand. Okay, if I want this funnel to be a healthy funnel uh, and just have the opportunities that looks most promising backed up by real data, um, I have to make the decisions like that. So that means I need to ask uh, the questions that are relevant in each phase, as we just discussed, as well as being able to kill enough projects or ideas uh, in the funnel um, to make room for others or to to double down on others that are 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 more um, uh, look more fruitful because of the of the data so these decisions are actually the basis of success of your whole innovation funnel and your innovation investments as well um, taking the decisions to to stop certain um, ideas as well as which ones are allowed to move forward based on um, the data and the questions that you can ask in each of these stages. And I think that is something that 
um, it's really important to understand that a board can actually do that. They're educated to do this, but but they also look at the whole funnel rather than just project by project or idea by idea. And that, that is one of the fundamentals of um, the su successful uh, investment in, in, in this, these kind of innovations. Let's help our audience here, particularly those people who are looking to do this, put this into place. Where, where and how do they select that board and when does it happen in the process, perhaps? The venture board or innovation board or whatever else they want to call it, um, I think it's an essential part of the innovation system, if not the most important part of the innovation system, because that's where decisions are being taken. That's where uh, people working on innovation meet with the people working on probably strategy or the people that can finance them, definitely the people that can finance them. So uh, it's a very, very important uh, meeting and it's a very important setup to have. Uh, who should be there? Well, uh, we propose in the book a couple of roles that should attend. Obviously, you need to have an innovation manager. Uh, obviously, you need to have somebody from, from finance. You might need to bring in an, um, uh, you know, key area specialists if the teams presenting are doing something that have to do with, um, I don't know, um, again, retail banking, let's say, or cryptocurrencies or blockchain. You might want to have an expert in that particular field attending. Um, again, the, the meeting should not be viewed as a, as a punishing meeting. Actually, the team should be encouraged and they should be looking forward to attending this venture board meeting because that's where they will get feedback and that's where they will uh, get coaching. Coaching happens in the venture board meetings. Uh, but most importantly, what happens in venture board meetings is that decisions are being taken. So um, obviously you want to have um, probably a higher up sitting there if the mature is, uh, if the questions presenting are a bit more mature and you need to take a, a strategic decisions. Do we spin this off? Do we keep this in? Which department are we going to integrate with? So on and so forth. We present there um, an ideal uh, venture board in, um, in the book. But uh, what's important for people to, to remember listening to this, uh, listening to this interview is that the venture board meetings need to happen with cadence. And by cadence, I don't mean every three months, because that's also a cadence, but that's not the ideal cadence. Um, these meetings should happen ideally every three weeks. Every three weeks um, or two weeks or one month tops. Obviously, it needs to be connected with the speed of your organization and the speed of your industry. Pharma, medical devices, maybe the speed is a bit slower than retail banking or fast mover consumer goods or anything around that space, which is a bit less regulated, I would say. Um, but those meetings need to happen with a very good cadence, as I said, every three weeks. Every three weeks, teams come and present their progress. Uh, they get feedback from uh, their investors, because essentially these are investors in the organization. They know if they're on the right track. They know if they need to make any adjustments. They keep everybody in the loop. Again, you are seeing there are a lot of transparency. You don't expect teams to lock themselves in for three months. And then all of a sudden, after three months, they come with very shiny backs and say, look at what I've done. Please invest in me another $1 million. I'm not saying that in three months, they're not going to ask for $1 million if they come and visit you every three weeks. But the decision that you are going to take after three months is going to be easier if you have been with the team along that particular development journey. 
So it's very important that this meeting, again, happen, happen with cadence. There is information flowing in both directions from the team to the decision maker, from the decision maker to the team. And is it, it's an atmosphere of trust there. It's an atmosphere of learning. It's an atmosphere of mutual respect and, and mutual support. Um, a lot of organizations that we worked with said that they have this in place. Uh, however, most of them actually don't. What they have is your typical demo day setup. Um, you know, we meet the teams every three months or every six months when they need to clear a certain gate. A certain gate can be cleared during any of the meetings happening every three weeks. A venture board can take, can take one idea from one stage to the other of the product lifecycle based on the evidence that the team is bringing forward at any stage, at, at any time throughout uh, the, the life cycle of the idea. You don't have to wait three months and then everybody comes and presents and then you take a decision which one will be progressed. You can advance to one idea after one week and you can advance one idea after six months. Uh, this is why it's important to have that rapid cadence if you want. Uh, decision is very simple. Stop, progress, or persevere. Stop means please stop. There is no evidence. Let's, let's just move your talent and our money to something a bit more useful. Um, progress means great. There is enough evidence after just one week of work or two weeks of work or one month of work to progress you to the next stage. By the way, now, since you're moved to the next stage, focus on all these new questions and all these new things because now you're a bit more mature. Or persevere means, hey, great work you've put in for the past three weeks. Um, we would encourage you now to continue working here because we still don't have, we're, we are still missing some key evidence proving that this idea will be successful in the future. So don't take it as uh, the wrong thing, but just please continue doing what you're doing because it's great. We just need to hear more about the customer, about the particular value proposition, about everything that you were working on. I would say that 90% of the decisions will be persevere decisions and only 10% will be progress versus stop. It's so important because when you even think of feedback as a person working in an organization, say, for example, you give me some fuzzy directions to go and work on a project, I work on it for three months, go back and go, ta-da, and you're kind of going, oh, that's not what I meant. That It's that, and going back to what Esther was saying about the whole idea of spreading your bets in the casino, if you're constantly checking in with the team you're actually going to save money by actually not backing something or having them frustrated by working on something that never would have made it through as well. And I wanted to just highlight one last point on this that's really important. You talk about if it's a highly regulated industry, like banking, for example, or pharma, you need to have somebody from legal or risk in that meeting or regulation in the meeting because you could be exploring something that's just not going to happen. And that becomes an absolutely core point. I thought that was really important. Esther, anything to add? Well, maybe just the importance of stopping things. I think that is one that is really underestimated. And that decision doesn't necessarily, uh, is always taken by the venture board. What we see in a lot of companies is that um, if the team knows what to do and has a structural approach to, um, to looking for a business model, the team will probably be be able to um, dismiss or say we need to stop this by themselves in the beginning and, and 
if you don't have a venture board that 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 is uh, gathered often enough, they'll just sit around doing nothing while they could have picked up something else and started validating that one. So I think the stopping decision is one of the most important decisions. Uh, and if you have your your process and your trade set up in the right way, that is one that can be easily made even by the teams when they and then they have to request a, a board meeting just to, to say yes you're right pick up something else except if it comes to that ceo's project is like the pet project don't touch that don't touch that project. <laughs> let's not measure that just pretend it's perfect guys it's been an absolute pleasure thank you for your time you've dedicated a lot of time uh today. show it's the morning it's the midst of storms uh, not for dan dan's in barcelona Esther is in uh, in Amsterdam and lives near a lake. It's been blown all over the place over there. I nearly died coming in here this morning to record. So we've all we've all battled hard. Dan's off to the beach now afterwards, though. But anyway, my my sincere thanks to you. I have the copies of the book behind me. I highly recommend this. I highly recommend corporate startup to a lot of people who are exploring innovation in first instance but also to startups as well it's a really useful uh, book for startups and then also innovation accounting your follow-up book which is absolutely brilliant and uh, highly highly needed as well i have a final quote uh, that i'm going to share in a moment and it's not by you it's uh, by albert einstein believe it or not that i actually think is so important for the work that we do in innovation but before i do that as a sign off for me where can people fi- find you and maybe what products do you offer? I'll come to you first, Esther, because you guys are like a collective that come together to work on these projects. Uh, you work together, but you also work separately. So Esther, I'll come to you first. So where can you find more about me? Well, obviously, on uh, connect. please connect on LinkedIn because I love to chat to people with a different perspective or who wants to ask questions. Uh, and you can find more of me um, uh, on twogroundcontrol.com. Thanks very much, Dan. Over to you. All LinkedIn would be the go to go to place where you can find me and we can have a chat where we can exchange ideas. Um, and uh, you can go to weareoutcome.co to follow more of uh, my and my colleagues' work on uh, changing and transforming large organizations. And I'll share those uh, links to your websites on the show notes as well. There's a quote, I don't know if you know, guys know this quote, but there's a quote by Albert Einstein that I think is so important for the work that you've done on this about finding a common metrics behind innovation. It's, it goes as follows. Everyone is a genius. But if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will live its whole life believing that it's stupid. And he was really talking about the whole idea of the education system not being fit for everybody. But I think it's actually an ideal quote for also what you're doing here, finding common metrics, but also common to the individualities of different organizations and the life cycle and where they are on the life cycle of innovation as well becomes really important. Co-authors of Innovation Accounting, Esther Emily Hans, and previous guest and friend of the Innovation Show, Dan Toma. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having us. Pleasure to be here, Aiden. Thanks as always to our sponsor, Zai. Zai helps businesses manage multiple payment workflows and move funds so they can pay and get paid without delays. You can find out more about Zai at hellozai.com.